0: Pages in a book
1: My love and I So close We can share a single look
2: Share every side So close
1: before I hear your laugh My laugh breaks
3: through So, close as pages in a book. We think of pages in a book as something that we read silently and perhaps sing about from time to time. Uh, but yes, that idea of reading silently is sort of the, the default position these days. That's how you read unless somebody asks you to read out loud or you insist on doing it. But as you'll hear here in the first segment, that isn't necessarily the way things started out. Uh, and we'll, you'll also hear in the second segment uh, from somebody who is really just an unquestioned master of reading slash performing books uh, as audiobooks. And then at the end, you'll hear about a marathon reading of the poems of Emily Dickinson. And at the slightest prompting, speaking of music, I will be happy to sing an Emily Dickinson song to the tune of Yellow Rose of Texas. That's not really in the script, but I mean, I'm hoping I get a chance to do it. You could do that with most of them. (laughs) I mean, I'm not saying that's how she planned it, but you could do it with most of them. All right, but here to actually introduce some information and thoughtfulness into this conversation, uh, Alberto Mangal uh, is the director of Lisbon's Center for Research into the History of Reading. Uh, and he joins us to talk about, it. in fact, that evolution uh, of reading from aloud to silent. It's not it's that way, not the other way around. Welcome to our conversation. Uh, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. So let's just talk a little bit about this. I mean, you can almost tell from the early stirrings of literature, that it's probably kind of meant to be out, read out loud. We think Homer you know, may not even be just one person and may have been a person, a series of people who went around saying things. I mean, at the beginning of the Aeneid, it's armo virumque cano, I sing of arms and a man. It's not I write of arms and a man. So, I mean, I, I assume what we're talking about is an, uh, an allowed tradition at the beginning of reading.
2: You are starting about 3,000 years too late. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Um, uh, The
2: psychologist uh, Julian Jaynes wrote about the bicameral mind and the origin of consciousness. And uh, his theory is that when we started putting words into writing, when the first traces of writing appeared, when we looked at those traces, when we read, the reading did not come to us silently. They were not uh, visual uh, uh, hallucinations, but they were oral hallucinations. The, you, you heard the sounds of the signs uh, inscribed in stone or in clay. So at the beginning of writing, uh, the sound of the words existed for us in their presence.
3: And and just to fast forward, since our time is short, so one of the reasons we know that that reading was done almost entirely aloud is that when Saint Saint Augustine encounters someone who's reading silently, he goes, "Wow, that's that's weird. I haven't seen that before." Tell us that story.
2: Yeah, there there, there are a few examples of the surprise that people had when they encountered silent reading the most famous one is saint augustine saint augustine goes to milan he visits his mother's friend ambrose he visits ambrose in ambrose's cell the man is surrounded with books and augustine in the Confessions says but his lips were not moving his tongue was silent but it was obvious that he was reading so Um, Reading about uh, Augustine's surprise, we understand that uh, reading silently was unusual. It it wasn't impossible because in another passage of the Confessions, uh, Augustine tells us that he's reading silently, so it wasn't impossible. What happens uh, unto about the uh, ninth century, because uh, words were uh, written in capital letters, there were no punctuation marks, or very few. Letters were not separated. Words were not separated. Um, in order to decipher a text that you came across for the first time, you would speak it out loud, as you would today if you encountered that kind of text. But silent reading didn't start until uh, to be common until about the ninth century, where uh, we have the punctuation marks and the separation of words that allow us to read with more ease.
3: and And so um, we think of libraries as very quiet places where people are supposed to shh so everybody else can uh, concentrate on what they're reading silently. But this all suggests that the library at, at Alexandria was probably not the most quiet place in the world.
2: Probably not. We know nothing about Alexandria because of all the reports that have come to us about um, the city of Alexandria. When the travelers come to describe the library, well, they say it's so famous, we don't need to talk about it. Well, (laughs) that's not helpful. (laughs) We have nothing uh, that describes what was happening in the library, but we can assume that it wasn't the reading out loud as if I read to you out loud, communicating a text to you. It was a kind of probably a kind of murmur that you would hear in the Quranic school or Talmudic school where the students read. Uh, so to speak with a whole body. So you, you mount the words, you touch the book, you rock to the sound of the text. So it was it might have been something like that.
3: So when do we really get into the the, the sense, the almost default understanding that reading should be silent unless prompted to do otherwise? When when does when does that shift happen?
2: A- around the ninth century it has become common um, uh, monks in monasteries were supposed to read and study the scripture, but they should, would do it silently except during meal times where it was read out loud. And then it becomes common, it becomes a sign of education. You were a literate, educated person if you read silently. And uh, reading out loud becomes a dangerous practice, because um, reading silently was considered dangerous in the beginning, because you didn't know what the person was doing. Uh, And so heretics were uh, supposed to get their heretical ideas by reading silently. But later on, much later on, in uh, the 19th century, for instance, Uh, there was a a law in the United States forbidding uh, slaves to read and forbidding above all the teaching of slaves to read. And the slaves um, uh, discovered or created certain strategies to be able to learn to read. And so we have very moving accounts, like Thomas Johnson, who became a a very uh, well-known preacher in England afterwards. Uh, He couldn't read and he found the strategy of asking uh, his master's uh son who was as a child learning to read and reading out loud and praising the reading out loud of the child so through that uh, uh, Johnson managed to learn to read and that was considered dangerous and forbidden
3: So uh, there's almost, uh, in reading your piece about this, uh, a a sort of vague undercurrent of Christian and maybe specifically Protestant constipation and suppression about all this. I mean, you towards the end say uh, that um, uh, all this silent reading, a host of silent readers who over the next many centuries would include Luther, would include Calvin, would include Emerson, would include us reading him today. There's, there's maybe this sense that, you know, that you don't read out loud. Well, I mean, Luther was actually constipated, but, I mean, you don't read out loud because it's more modest and less sinful to just read in silence, more holy?
2: Um, It's um, ambiguous. Um, reading silently meant that no one knew what you were reading, and you can re- read forbidden texts and comment. On them in your mind, but reading out loud was a, a way of counteracting the censorship of, uh, of of silent reading, and you could share your reading, your discoveries with others. And uh, reading out loud has many uh, a for- takes on many forms. That is to say reading out loud to to a colleague with whom you want to share what you have discovered silently, reading out loud to a child that you want to entertain, reading out loud to a lover with whom you want to share that very private thing that is a beloved text, or uh, reading out loud as a performance Um, There is an anecdote I like very much in in the first century, um, uh, Livy, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, Pliny the Younger. Pliny the Younger, uh, in one of his letters, says that he was a very bad reader out loud. He performed very badly. So in one event where he had to read some of his texts to a public, he put a curtain behind him and he got a slave who could read very well, stand behind the curtain and read the text for him, and Pliny would mouth the words. It was the first lip-sync in history.
3: <laughs> the original Millie Vanilli. It was Pliny Vanilli. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm amazed, amazed that Plautus didn't turn that into a comedy. It has something kind of theatrical uh, about, about it, that story. So one, th- one thing that occurred to me is that a modern poet um, you almost can't make a living. You almost can't have a career as a modern poet. I'd say really maybe for the last 125 years minimum. If you don't do readings, if you don't go places where you read your poetry aloud to audiences, I mean, it really is just baked in. Uh, we're going to be talking about Emily Dickinson at the end of the show, who would be the exception to that rule, obviously. But I wondered about that. Is that Is poetry always kind of carved out that way as, yes, this is something that to be understood just the same way that Shakespeare's, uh, you know, Shakespeare's speeches and plays need to be heard to be understood? Is it always sort of understood that poetry has its own category?
2: In some cases... um poetry is intimately associated with song and with music so uh, certainly in in greece and rome they were performances and when we read the text now we read as it were the script of an opera without the staging without the music um, but it, it happens with other forms of writing uh, throughout the 19th century uh, writers of novels gave performances the performances of Dickens were very, very celebrated. Uh, He mm, acted out the voices of his different characters and he put so much enthusiasm in it. So every reading he would have to change his shirt several times, it was
3: soaked with sweat. (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm sitting here about four blocks from uh, the home of Mark Twain, who also obviously had a tremendous career uh, just reading his own work and and giving yes. speeches and the, the, the translation of the work into into sound. I just wanted to come back to Emerson for a second because I, I was just so I'm a big Emerson fan. I don't want to sound like I'm making fun of him. Uh, I am too. I am too. Yeah, and he's much more of an ecstatic, you know, than say Luther or Calvin would have been. And there is something in the quote that you have from him. There's something a little erotic and, dare I say, maybe onanistic about the way he describes reading uh, in silence and in privacy. He says, but they are for the closet and are to be read on bended knee. Their communications are not to be given or taken with the lips and the end of the tongue, but out of the glow of the cheek and with the throbbing heart. You know, this is <laughs> this is a pretty passionate statement. For the rest
2: of his life he associated Plato with a smell of wool, um because his blanket covered him up to the chin. But there is something erotic in reading. You don't take anything with you into bed, and you take a book into bed, and um it has something erotic in the fact that you commune with the text, hold it in your hands, use your lips to speak it. I agree with Emerson.
3: Yes. Well, I mean, it's hard to disagree with the way that he expresses it there, too. So I, I just have to say you have one of the more remarkable reading aloud to somebody else's stories in the modern world, probably. Uh, and this involves the great uh, Jorge Luis Borges. Uh, tell us that story. I was an adolescent working in a bookstore in
2: Buenos Aires, Borges came to the bookstore, he would buy books, he was accompanied by his 90-year-old mother, and at a certain point his mother got too tired to read to him, Borges had become blind in his mid-50s. So Borges would ask anyone to come and read to him what he wanted to uh, revisit. And so one day he asked me if I would come to his house in the evening and read to him. And I said yes. And I did that for uh, the
3: next three years. (laughs) Well, I mean, first of all, that would make me very nervous. And, And was he, I don't know, did he give you stage instructions? Did he say, Alberto, no, you're going too fast or something like that?
2: Well, he didn't want any kind of interpretation. When when he became blind, he had decided that he would write poetry because poetry came to him like a music and he could dictate the words to that music afterwards, but that he would not write prose because he said he needed to see his hand writing prose. But ideas came to him for stories and for essays, And so after 10 years, this was in the mid-60s that I met him, uh, he decided that he would go back to uh, writing prose. But before that, he wanted to revisit the stories that he had read earlier and that he thought were masterpieces. And he wanted to revisit them because he wanted to understand technically how they worked. It was like a mechanic taking apart a motor. And so I was taking apart the motor for him. I read to him uh, Chesterton, Stevenson, Henry James, and so on. And uh, Borges would listen to the reading, the texts were chosen by Borges, And he would interrupt after a sentence or two and make a comment about the structure, about the use of a certain word, about the tone. But these were comments for him. They were not comments for me. I had the privilege. I didn't know it at the time that it was a privilege. I had the privilege of assisting to the reading of one of the great minds of the 20th century.
3: You know, it's, it's an amazing, amazing thing. We we have to stop there, although there's plenty more to say. Well, with Alberto Mangal, the director of Lisbon's Center for Research into the History of Reading. Thank you so much for your time today. And now we're going to segue into, just as we go out of this segment, you're going to hear uh, a little sort of comic take on the idea of reading someone else's prose. This will be David Alan Greer's impression of Maya Angelou uh, endorsing Butterfinger candy bars.
2: <clears throat> the wind... The rain, the fire,
3: the butter finger.
2: Did the caveman know your delicious goodness? Did the Mayan priest exult in your buttery crunchiness? Did the slothful mastodon, upon his extinction, declare, Don't lay a finger upon my butter finger? Oh, you finger of butter! You proud confection, sugar brown roasted peanuts. Fructose, glucose, sucrose, lactose, partially hydronidated palm kernel oil, crispity, crunchity, peanut buttery, I give myself to you. Butterfinger, glad mantle of golden chocolatey hope upon my breast. Butterfinger, I'll
1: let
4: you go.
3: But love still Why? I don't know.
4: Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare.
2: Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare.
3: So uh, we are going to change gears a little tiny bit, but not a lot. And I am going to have a chance to talk to someone I consider a very close personal friend because she spent 10 and a half hours speaking into my ear over the last week or so. And that would be Robin Miles, a Hall of Fame audiobook narrator, really one of the superstars of this world. Uh, And she's also a producer, director, teacher, actor for theater, television, films, and museums. And uh, as a personal note, um, I was listening to her read Dennis Lane's small mercies and I have some very specific questions about that but first of all welcome to the show it's so great to have you
0: thank you so much I'm really glad to be here
3: so we should just we should also just talk a little bit about maybe if there, a distinction if there is one between uh-huh. reading and performing so actually when you when you do for example small mercies um, mm-hmm. Mr. Audiobook, whoever he is at the beginning, says performed by Robin Miles. Uh, (laughs) uh, And so talk about that.
0: Um, That's a great place to start, actually, because it's one of the distinctions that I make for my students. And that is um, reading aloud is a little like a football field. (laughs) And you have an end zone on the left, which is reading aloud. And you have an end zone on the right, which is performing an audiobook. And then you have this area in the middle, like between the 40 yard line and the 40 yard line, which is the sweet spot for narrating a book. Um, You can never drop the ball and leave emotional threads or irony or levels of meaning on the table. Um, So that leans a little bit more to performance. Um, But reading aloud without The emotionally intelligent part of it is the other end zone of just reading aloud. So I find, and it's really about the author, I have to follow my author's clues as to what does this book need to be read aloud? Does it need a little bit more performance? Does it need a little bit more distance? Can I stay back a bit and really just let you you, you inject your meaning and your judgments on things.
3: Um, so I, have, so yeah. I, I let the text dictate to me. So I have to get this out of the way because I'm just going to be bursting with mm-hmm. eagerness to ask it. Uh, it <laughs> sure. really should come up a little later in the conversation. This isn't my even my first date with Robin Miles, um, I, I've heard you, I've had you on my phone reading N.K. Jemison uh, as well. Um, mm-hmm. And so, but so, Small Mercies. There's, there's no non-awkward way to talk about this. Small Mercies yeah. takes place during the bus, busing crisis in Boston during the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is written from the perspective of a white woman named Mary Pat Fennessy. You are basically narrating and performing in her voice, and then doing yes. also the voices of the people around her. Most of her- who <laughs> are white Boston racists who sprinkle right. the N-word pretty uh, liberally, if that's the right liberally. word, yeah, yeah through, that's through what they word. say. <laughs> yes. and, and I, although I, I, I've heard you before, I just looked at a picture of you today. You appear to be a person of color. I, it never occurred yeah. to me that the person who was doing, I mean, you're so convincing as Mary Pat Fennessy. It just, right. I was flabbergasted to discover you're not a white lady.
0: Okay. Um, I think that's a compliment.
3: It is. It is. Like, how did you, how did you, I don't know, you really had to, you have to project yourself into a very different kind of person than yourself.
0: Um, I am a trained actor. I I went to Yale Drama School. I've done Broadway and regional. So I know how to tackle character. But I think in this particular instance, um, it is a little more than that. And I've got to reference how I grew up. Um, I grew up in a little town in New Jersey my pa- in the 60s. Um, my parents moved in in 63 before I was even born. And they took a risk moving into a suburban white neighborhood during the time when crosses were being burned on people's lawns. Um, my mom was a professional, my dad was a rising professional, and they took this chance. And our neighbors, particularly my next-door neighbor, um, who was a Scottish farm girl from Seattle area, of Washington State, just embraced us. I grew up in this neighborhood where my next-door neighbors on one side were uh, Cuban Jews with an accent. Mm. My next-door neighbor on the other side, farm girl, I got the Washington State accent, the guy who lived behind us, Arthur Weiss, uh, had lived through the camps. He was a watchmaker, German watchmaker. Um, we had this kind of first-generation neighborhood. And all the kids were five years older. They were my sister's age. When I was born, I had nobody to play with except my friend from Vietnam. my Vietnamese. <laughs> I didn't know she was Vietnamese at the time. I didn't know that till way later. Kim Su, she lived down the block. She was my pal. Mm-hmm. And then when she moved, it was Heidi Zinsmeister and the Altancos were down at this end of the block, and the Italian family of almost everybody had grandparents who had an accent, including (laughs) mine from Jamaica. I actually went all the way to college. I went to Yale undergrad. I got there. I thought, oh, wow, it's a big cosmopolitan place, all these people from all over. I thought everybody grew up like that. I thought everybody grew (laughs) up with like immigrants from every country around them. And I discovered that that was not the case. I did not grow up in segregation but being a little kid with no other little kids to play with I was that annoying child <laughs> that would go down the <laughs> block and knock on your door and say hi I'm here <laughs> to the adults which you'd never think to do these days right you know it just sounds so dangerous but all the neighbors welcomed in this this little black child who was very curious and I would watch you know, my neighbor who is an oil painter, I'd sit and watch her paint or I would come and talk to them. And I would always go to Mr. Wise's house at 12 o'clock because as a watchmaker, the grandfather clocks and the <laughs> cuckoo clocks under glass would all go off at noon.
3: Ooh. So I I, I want to know a little bit about you in the booth. So <laughs> yeah. I read one description of you walking into the booth barefoot, but I think that's because you'd had rain boots on that day. But I, I want right. to know, like we, we just interviewed uh, an expert in the history of reading who talked about sort of there is a history of reading mm-hmm. aloud that involves quite a bit of body English, so to speak. Uh, and mm-hmm. I'm kind of wondering about that. If I were to watch you from outside the booth, in the booth, would I see you moving around quite a bit and gesticulating, or what What are you doing when you're in there?
0: Um, I have a swivel chair with a post in the center so I can kind of move my body around. <laughs> it's not a chair with four feet. Um, I do gesture, and I think what's probably most animated is my face. Because if I move around too much, I I drift off the microphone, off the center. And once you've done that, your voice goes. "Ah, ah, ah." (laughs) So you have to be you do have to be comfortable in a in in a certain degree of um, stillness in terms of positioning. But after that arms gesture. Sometimes I gesture and I whack my mic <laughs> <laughs> like they poof, and I got to do the thing again. Um, but I am. Um, it, it's hard for me. I, I started out actually as a dancer singer. And so my body is really part of how I, I express anything. Yeah. Very, yeah, it's very physical.
3: So, in some instances, okay. So, so for small, let's take the two I've mentioned so far. For small mercies, uh, you <laughs> are recreating as best uh, you can a world that actually did exist, and you are speaking in yeah. uh, a, a Boston accent that is familiar to some of us anyway, and
5: mm-hmm.
3: um, and but. When you're doing the work of kind of a sci-fi fantasy writer like N.K. Jemisin uh, in the Mm -hmm. fifth season and a whole lot of other books, you are now essentially the voice uh, uh, of N.K. Jemisin narration and and dialogue. You're effectively inventing the audio version of a world that nobody's been to. That doesn't exist, yeah. Could you say a little bit about Um, that? I mean, you're inventing even accents, sort of regional accents for regions that uh, are not on any map that doesn't belong to N.K. Jemisin.
0: I'm. So glad that you noticed and appreciated that. Um, To start out with, with small mercies, um, the Irish accent is one that I'm really comfortable with. My next-door neighbor's right across the street, Irish family. Mm -hmm. Lots of Irish families on my block I also babysat for. And uh, one of my friends' moms, Mrs. Pickering, had a very strong Southern Irish accent. So I grew up listening to that, and it's it's just turned out that the Irish community and the Black community have had a lot of contact um, in New York, the Five Points neighborhood and surrounding areas. Mm-hmm. It was really very much about interaction between Blacks and the Irish, which turned dark because of the draft riots, um, Civil War time. But when it comes to taking on a fantasy world What I find fascinating is, I know that there are certain speech characteristics that belong to different languages. And I feel free to liberally take, borrow and do a mashup. I love mashups. Um, If I have a a culture that maybe is dominant in their world, um, a military might, I might take German and Japanese and do a mashup and, and keep either like the, the consonants and vowels from German and then, um, or German and like Nigerian, uh, I would use the <laughs> the rhythm of that sort of African language applied to German consonants, consonants or German vowels. So that you're you're listening and you're going, well, that sounds German, but it's not because I don't want it to necessarily resonate that one culture I, I want it to have its uniqueness.
3: So I, so much goes on when you're reading prose, reading fictional prose mm-hmm. in particular. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play a little clip for you by, of somebody else reading, not somebody who is a uh-huh. professional reader, but he's a friend of ours. Sure. His name is Dennis Duncan. He recently wrote a book that was the entire history of indexes. Uh, mm-hmm. It was pretty fascinating. But so he wanted to read uh, just a few seconds of the 18th century novel Tristram Shandy. So here we go, Kat. This is B1. This is Dennis Duncan.
2: Time wastes too fast. Every letter I trace tells me with what rapidity life follows my pen, the days and hours of it, more precious, my dear Jenny, than the rubies about thy neck are flying over our heads like light clouds of a windy day, never to return more. Everything presses on, whilst thou art twisting that lock. See, it grows gray. And every time I kiss thy hand to bid adieu, and every absence which follows it are preludes to that eternal separation which we are shortly to make. Heaven have mercy upon us both.
3: So, Robin, you know, Dennis is not a professional reader of books and and everything like Mm -hmm. that, and he's giving it a pretty straight read, but, you know, a rhythmic, effective read. But there's a way in which you know, you, you want the author's humor to come out when the humor should come out, and you mm-hmm. want the poignance to come out when the poignance should come out. And and I guess each reader makes choices, too. Like, right? how much, how thick do you lay that on, or how much do you point the reader towards an emotional reaction? Uh, could you say a little bit, I mean, what? Are you, how are you thinking, I guess, about the, the, the listener, as who I'm really talking about, the listener, uh, as you're performing or reading a novel?
0: Oh, wow. That Um, The listener is key um, because there's a sense of intimacy. I am with you right now in a space I am reading to you, not to a group of people. I am reading to you. So that's the first thing is I have to establish a relationship with somebody who isn't physically there with me which is why I use the projected image of somebody, uh, just like I have a presence with me all the time. That is the receiver of whatever is in the text. Um, Second thing is the sort of fluidity and the the connectedness of my thought. Um, I I guess I I do say this a lot. It's true when I'm teaching. Um, You, I don't want to perform a book at such a high level of performance, as I said before, um, that people forget that this is an act of communicating. This is, this has a message. A paragraph may have a message, a chapter may have a tone. um, And I am charged with communicating that to somebody. There's always a target that a person, um, if you forget that, it becomes disconnected. It becomes, look at me performing and how great I do these accents. And I describe it sometimes as a beautiful long silk scarf that you throw around your neck with a flourish. <laughs> and you're now saying, look at, look at me, wield this scarf. Look at how good I'm at wielding this scarf. And that's not the point and not at all. You know, if you need to put the scarf on to keep warm, that's great. Have it draped down your front, but go back to communicating what's in the text.
3: And, and what's in the text also is uh, – this interview is going to run long. I'm going to get in trouble with with McCusker, the producer, because <laughs> I, I need to talk to you for a couple hours actually. But um, what's in the text is, is often thought, both with Mary Pat Fennessy in Small Mercies and then the narrator yeah. of, of, of The Fifth Season. They're mm-hmm. often thinking through a question and so yes. you are talking to me the listener in right. the kind in a kind of mind voice and i would assume the thing that you're that you just mm-hmm. said before imagining a sort of specific kind of i don't know or non-specific generic <laughs> single listener is important like i i feel very included in those thoughts in the fifth season somehow mm-hmm. of this person that i'll never meet
0: Right. Um, Well, one really, I think, important distinction is that in the fifth season trilogy, three uh, POVs are are employed, Mm -hmm. first person, second person, and third person, depending on where you are. There's not a lot that's written in second person, but that is that inner voice. Mm -hmm. You, 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 You get up in the morning, you move to the bathroom with your cup, and you drop it as you always do. You know that, it's the voice in your mind talking you through the thing that's happening. And oftentimes, when do we talk to ourselves? When we're when we're evaluating something, when we're reviewing something. Um, there's a lot of raison d'etre, or maybe I should say raison d'eux, <laughs> like reason to speak. Um, if I'm in a first person section, am I speaking to you I'm, I'm going to try and figure this out from the writing. And most of the time, my, I think my authors are pretty clear. Is this, uh, uh, do, do I need absolution from something I've done? Am I seeking absolution? So I need you to grant that. Um, am, is this an insider story? Like I'm on the, like Devil Wears Prada. I'm on the inside of the fashion industry. You'd never know this if you didn't have me. So sit down, let me talk to you. You know, like that kind of a thing. <laughs> um And that's the same for CSI. Think about our American culture. We are obsessed with CSI, Insider View, uh, ER, the show ER, what goes on in an emergency room. Those are things that a very small select group of people really know. And so those kinds of novels bring that to it. Um, uh, It could be a cautionary tale. Mm -hmm. Like I'm literally trying to tell you I've been through this. Don't make the same mistake. If you can... If you can sense how the writing is oriented, then you can deliver on that.
3: All right, we're going to we're unfortunately going to have to stop here or I really will be executed by the producer. But this is really fascinating, Robin Miles, and you are a legend in the business of audiobooks. It's thrilling to talk to you. And speaking of books, oh, thanks thanks once again. And speaking of books, we're going to end with a little reading by our good friend Tanisha Dugan, who's going to read a speech called I memorized her from an American Mar- marriage a novel by the American author Tyari Jones. Uh, here's Tanisha. Roy
1: Standing on the sidewalk outside the restaurant, I memorized her. The shape of her lips and the purple tint of her lipstick, which matched the streaks in her hair. I knew her accent. Southern, but not too much. And I knew her shape. Thick through the hips, but slim on top. I had said her name was something old-timey, but I should have said something classic I can remember the feel of her name in my mouth, like the details of a dream. I want to see Brooklyn. She asked. My other roommate works at two steps down. If we go there, we can drink for free. And my first mind was to tell her that we didn't need free cocktails, but I had a feeling she'd be more annoyed than impressed. So I said, "Let's get a taxi." <laughs> you won't get a taxi tonight.
2: I'm Ray Hartman. Season 3 of Where Art Thou is just around the corner. I'll be back on the road meeting incredible Connecticut artists. You'll hear their stories, and we'll throw in a few surprises as well. Season 3 of Where Art Thou premieres June 9th on CPTV. For more, visit ctpublic.org W-A-T.
3: Support provided by the Richard P. Garmini Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, the State of Connecticut Office of Film, Television, and Digital Media, and Connecticut Humanities. All right. One quick correction. Uh, the Butterfinger thing uh, uh, earlier in the show was read by Drew John Ladd, I guess, ad- adapting from David Allen Greer's original performance. Uh, the technical producer of today's show, we are so fortunate to have Kat Pastor. The producer of this episode is McCusker uh, and Lily Tyson's our senior producer. We are going to switch gears once again. Uh, and interestingly... Talk about uh, live readings of the work of maybe the one poet who, as I suggested before, might be one of the very few poets who didn't do live readings. So joining us is uh, Brooke Steinhauser, uh, programs director at the Emily Dickinson Museum in Amherst, Massachusetts. Hi, welcome to our conversation.
5: Hey, thanks for
3: having me. I mean, I assume I'm right about this. I mean, Emily Dickinson, famously reclusive and not really known in her lifetime as somebody who was writing all these poems. So I assume if anybody ever heard her read them out loud, it would have been maybe immediate family members
5: you know, yeah, she uh, published fewer than 10 poems in her lifetime. And uh, we actually don't think it was really her that was publishing that small handful. It was really, uh, they were published anonymously and likely sent in by friends and family. Um, So yes, her family knew she was a poet, they received poems from her in letters. Um, Whether or not she read them out loud in front of her friends and family, I think is a great question. We do know she read other Other poetry out loud. um, She was part of a Shakespeare reading group uh, as a young woman, and uh, it seems from letters that she may have continued reading his work out loud. There's a reference to her reading Antony and Cleopatra in the (laughs) garret, and the rafters wept.
3: Yeah, I read about that Shakespeare group, I think, on your museum's website, uh, and that intrigued me, the idea that she was, you know, reading Desdemona or something. Um, But um, let's talk a little bit about what you do. And I guess there are uh, maybe other places that do this, but the idea is to have a marathon reading uh, of uh, Emily Dickinson poems, of which there are very, very many. How does that unfold?
5: Yeah, so uh, every fall in September, um, coinciding with our Tell It Slant Poetry Festival, we have a marathon reading of all 1,789 poems in the Ralph Franklin edition of Emily Dickinson's Complete Works. Um, This is actually, I think we're coming up on our 20th anniversary of doing this. So the program is as old as the Emily Dickinson Museum is. This is our our 20th anniversary year um and it's uh the the marathon has taken on a few different iterations over the years but um it currently takes around about 14 hours to complete and i think what's unique about our marathon is that it has always been and continues to be a round-robin-style reading. So um, anyone, whether they have any experience with reading out loud uh, or reading Emily Dickinson's work out loud um, or not, uh, can participate, can sign up to be a reader. And we essentially go in a circle with um, each person reading one poem. Um,
3: So it's it's sort of randomly assigned. Do people fight over who gets to read, you know? Just thing yeah, you know, we
5: we do have folks come in, and and you know, sometimes they may not know how the marathon works, and they ask, you know, can I read this specific poem? It's a favorite of mine. Um, we we don't actually um, we're not able to honor that because we go in the order again that we're that we're basically sitting, um, which is arbitrary, and it's just one poem at a time. I think what's what's really fun about that is you don't know what's coming next. Um, we really want to um, hear the words in the organic moment in the voice of the reader. Um, we're not bringing on professional readers to do this. Um, and so, you know, so sometimes there's a magical moment where, you know, a poem that is beloved by that reader lands on them, you know, or they have a tattoo of that poem on their arm and they get to <laughs> read it out loud in the marathon and they're just overjoyed. But, um, you know, most of the time you just don't know what poem is coming to you next. So you there's no there's no sort of advanced preparation, really.
3: Does anybody ever want to sing one of them to the Yellow Rose of Texas?
5: No, but I heard your promise at the top of the show.
3: I can't wait to hear yours. Well, it goes, you know, <laughs> success is counted sweetest by those who ne'er succeed. To comprehend a nectar requires sorest need. You, know, you get it? You see how it goes. Uh, wow, that was
5: amazing.
3: <laughs> I, you're going to spend a lot of time trying to forget that that ever happened and get it now, out now of your brain. You like
5: a silent theme song.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I was also thinking about the fact that although we've never heard, uh, and most people, probably nobody, much of anybody ever heard Emily Dickens, read one of her poems. We are starting to hear somebody pretend to be Emily Dickinson reading uh, a poem or maybe even composing a a poem on the uh, the spot. Cat, let's play C1. This is the amazing Haley Steinfeld in the somewhat probably controversial fictional portrayal uh, of Emily Dickinson. Here she is composing a poem on a train.
1: Before I got my eye put out, I liked as well to see as other creatures that have eyes. No, no other way. But were it told to me today that I might have the sky, for mine, i tell you that my heart would split for size of me.
3: you know, uh, listening to her do that too. Uh, do you ever give anybody any advice how, about how to how to read the poem so that you know you 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 pick a certain cadence, a certain sound? Or, uh, is are there good uh, good practices?
5: You know, I I think for the for the case of our marathon, again, we really want We, what, what is really so effective with that program is the range of voices and delivery. Um, we I think there are uh, in approaching Dickinson's poetry to read out loud, there are definitely choices that a reader needs to make, whether they're making that in advance or whether they're making it on the spot. Um, you just heard Haley Steinfeld, I think, read that poem so beautifully. I, let, I think that was one of the real successes of the show, yes. actually, is um, the way that the poetry was incorporated. Um, Emily Dickinson uses a quite famous a lot of dashes in her poetry and um, lots of folks would argue that that indicates a, um, a sort of reading out loud quality of um, thoughtful pause right some readers really choose to adhere to that and others do not um, uh, you know some folks really choose to kind of uh, lean into her um, common meter so the reason you can read her you, the reason you can sing almost any of her poems to the yellow rose of Texas is that because she is using common meter or hymn meter. So some folks really kind of lean into that almost sing-song equality, while others really um, sort of deliberately uh, shy away from that or or, uh, don't employ that um, and want to follow more the line of thought across stanzas. So, you know, I think these are all really valid choices, and I think kind of um, take us to the big question about Dickinson, which is, you know, questions of affect and address, right? Did she did she want her poems read out loud? Did she write them thinking that they would be read out loud the way that she read Shakespeare out loud? We don't know.
3: Right. We're, um, we're going to have to pause there. This is fascinating stuff, though. Brooke Steinhauser is the uh, program's director at Emily Dickinson Museum in Amherst, a short trip from where I'm sitting. Make the trip there. Uh, we're going to end with a poem read by our own Kyone Wolf. The story behind it uh, is that it, it's a poem that she sent to a guest on her show, David Myers, uh, uh, Dr. David Myers, who was dying from glioblastoma. It's my understanding that he has now passed. But one of the things that she wanted to share with him, uh, he started asking for poems near the end of his life. So she shared uh, a poem called Blessing by the Irish poet, John O'Donohue. So here's Kyone Wolfe.
4: On the day when the weight deadens on your shoulders and you stumble, may the clay dance to balance you. And when your eyes freeze behind the gray window and the ghost of loss gets into you, may a flock of colors, indigo, red, green, and azure blue, come to awaken in you a meadow of delight. When the canvas frays in the coric of thought and a stain of ocean blackens beneath you, May there come across the waters a path of yellow moonlight to bring you safely home. May the nourishment of the earth be yours. May the clarity of light be yours. May the fluency of the ocean be yours. May the protection of the ancestors be yours. And so may a slow wind work these words of love around you, an invisible cloak, to mind your life.